Let's show you a picture and you tell me what's, what's wrong with this picture. Uh, this is a picture of, uh, let me find her name. I forgot her name already since first service. Uh, this is a, a picture of Huma Mobin. Uh, she and her fiance had been planning their honeymoon for months. They were going to go on a romantic trip to Greece. Then the wedding came and her fiance's uh, visa still had not been approved. So what do you do? You've already got the trip paid for. It is already paid for. Your spouse cannot go. Well, she decided to go alone. So these are her honeymoon photos alone. Here she is standing in a Greek shore. You see the missing husband there all alone. And here she goes and visits the Greek ruins. Once again, all alone. Now, can you really go on a honeymoon alone? Don't we just call that like a trip, you know? Um, uh, but uh, apparently she did. And by the way, there's this growing trend. The New York Times uh, reported recently that there's a growing trend for couples to take honeymoons alone. Like there's this couple from Northern Ireland and the husband was very much into soccer and, uh, and their team was playing in the championship in France. So he went to France. His uh, wife does not really care for soccer. So she went on a romantic trip to Niagara Falls without him. Separate honeymoons. They're calling them unimoons or solo moons. Uh, I don't know what kind of moon that is, uh, but uh, it just doesn't sound quite right. I mean, the whole purpose of a, of a honeymoon is, uh, is to, to go with someone, to, be, to, to, to enjoy being with someone. Another purpose of marriage is, uh, you know, for this cause, a husband shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they become one. Uh, they take vows, till death do us part. The reason you get married is to be together. And we see the same thing in God's relationship with the nation of Israel, that God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel. And last week we saw in Exodus chapter 32 that Israel committed spiritual adultery, uh, that they were unfaithful to God. And so God says, okay, fine, you go on to the promised land alone. And the question is, can you have a promised land without the promiser? Is a honeymoon a honeymoon if you go alone? Can you have the good life of all the things that God has promised if you're all alone? As we look at this passage this morning, as Moses is praying, we see that he longs for something more than just the land of milk and honey. He's craving God himself. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see, I hope you will see, and my prayer is that you will see, that you're longing for something more too, that the good life is not the good life unless God is in it. So let's look at this, our desire for the presence of God. Let's begin by looking, first of all, at uh, the uh, longing for God's presence, our longing for God's presence. Now, we only read the second half of chapter 33, but we're going to look at the whole passage. So if you put your Bible away, pull it back out, uh, because we're going to work our way through this chapter, at least a good portion of this chapter. And so the chapter begins... Uh, with this, God says to Moses, chapter 33, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, depart, uh, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring, I will give it. I'll send an angel. By the way, notice there, it says an angel. When God is going with his presence, it usually says the angel. It's not, that's not what he's doing. I'll send an angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, 
but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. God says, I'm going to keep my promise. Remember the last chapter, Israel uh, committed adultery against God by worshiping false gods, and God was threatening to destroy them. And Moses prays, and so God says, okay, I'm not going to destroy them. But that doesn't mean they have a happy marriage. God is now saying, okay, I'm not going not to put you to death, but I don't know if I really want to be married. And so you're going to have to go on alone. And so he says, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the promise. I'm going to take you into a land flowing with milk and honey. Wouldn't you love to go to a land flowing with milk and honey? And it's describing prosperity, beauty, peace. But I will not go with you. And when the Israelites hear this, they mourn. Say, how... How can this be the promise? We're going to have all the good stuff, but we're not going to have God. We're going on the honeymoon, but we're going alone. And, and, and the question that they realize, even with all their sinfulness and brokenness, they realize that you can have all the peace and prosperity that your heart desires. But if you do not have God, you're going to be empty. You're going to be empty. Now, now we know this, right? I mean, if there's any land that really could be described as a land flowing with milk and honey, it is our land. We are by far the most prosperous uh, people living in the most prosperous time ever. Uh, Robert Samuelson, who's now with the Washington Post, notes this. He says that we enjoy a level of prosperity, a level of peace, leisure, and personal comfort greater than any time in human history. Yet Samuelson goes on to note that despite all this, we have what he calls a roving and indestructible discontent, a feeling that life is not what it ought to be. We have all the goods, we've got milk and honey, but something is missing. Before Samuelson wrote those words, Henry David Thoreau said that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And by that, what he meant is we have settled for just an ordinary, mundane life when we long for more and we have this sense of desperation, but we've given up on having that desperation ever satisfied. He goes on to say after that, that he says that the reason we fill our lives with so much games and amusement is so that we can avoid dealing with the emptiness in our soul. We stay busy we find entertainment. We're looking for that next great adventure, that next 14er to climb, the next thrill. That way we don't have to think about what is going on in our souls and in our hearts. Uh, in many ways, uh, uh, Thoreau is echoing the words of St. Augustine. You remember how St. Augustine wrote his uh, famous confessions in the very opening chapter, very opening paragraphs. He said that we are restless because we were made for God. God made us for himself, therefore our hearts are restless until we find rest in him. And that's why C.S. Lewis said that God has made us for himself. And here's the quote. Because God has made us for himself, that is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. The good life without God is ultimately going to leave us empty. The good life without God is like going on a solo moon, a uni moon, a honeymoon alone. Uh, it, the, the stuff is all there, the pleasure's all there, but, 
but something is missing that makes it good, the essence of it. Have you ever considered that the reason, the reason you stay so busy in your life is because you're trying to drown out the cry of your own heart? Oh, many sociologists have noted that today we, we live what's called hyper-living. We're just kind of skimming across the surface of life. We stay, we stay so busy. Uh, in fact, when was the last time you had silence in your life? Not in the car? Not in your home, probably. TV, something's on, or the children are always turned on, right? They don't turn off. Uh, there's always noise. You, then you finally, you lie down in bed, and unless you're exhausted, then what does the mind do? It just starts to go and go and go. And we don't deal with the fact that something's missing. We keep thinking that maybe the reason, have you ever stopped to consider that maybe your own discontent, your own sense of restlessness is not because you're single and need that spouse to complete you, or because you're married and your spouse is failing to complete you, or because you don't have the right job, the right career, or maybe it'll be the next adventure, the next thrill, or whatever it is. Could it be that the emptiness, that longing, that restlessness, that, that quiet desperation is because God is not there, or you're not finding your satisfaction in him? Could it be you're trying to fill a void in your heart that only God could fill? The Israelites figured this out. So when God says, you're going to go to the land, milk and honey, peace, prosperity, you're going to have all that good stuff, and I'm not going to go with you, they mourn, they weep, they, they refuse to put on their, their ornaments, their jewelry. They say, what's the point of dressing up? What's the point of having a party if the, if the, if the groom's not going to be there? What's, what's the, the thrill of this? They mourn. And believe it or not, this is where the journey to joy actually begins. It begins with mourning. It begins with mourning, that, that loss that is not there. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How will they be comforted? Well, before we get to that, let's go to the next problem. We, we, we need God, but our, the problem is that we have a problem with God's presence. We, we long for God. Only God can satisfy it, but there's a problem. How can we have God? Now, after um, rescuing Israel out of Egypt, Kind of give you the, the story where we were are here, in case you weren't here last week. God brings them to the base of Mount Sinai, and then Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. And apparently he's up there a long time, about 40 days, so long that the people think he's probably dead or abandoned them. And so they commit spiritual adultery by worshiping a golden calf. They, they neglect, they, they forsake the God who rescued them out of slavery. But while Moses is up there on the mountain for 40 days, what he's doing is God is giving him the law, among other things. He's giving him the Ten Commandments. He says, says I've rescued you out of Egypt. I've redeemed you. Now here is how we're going to live our married life together. And then also, by the way, that begins in Exodus 19. And then we get in Exodus 32 where Israel rebels. So, so we have in those chapters there, God does something else. He describes what worship is going to be like for the Israelites in the wilderness. And he actually spends about seven chapters on a description of the tabernacle. Seven chapters. Now, that is a lot of the book of Exodus. Why so long on this? Well, the tabernacle... Now, you have to remember, the Israelites at this time are living in the wilderness. They're camping out. So they live in tents everywhere they go. And God says... I'm going to have a tent. It's called the tabernacle, sometimes called the tent of meeting. And I'm going to dwell in that tent. In that tabernacle, there'll be the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing God's throne and his presence. And the tabernacle will cover that. But I'm going to camp out right with you. In fact, he tells them how to arrange their campsites wherever they went. 
the tabernacle was going to be right there in the center of the camp, and then the 12 tribes would camp around it. God was going to draw near. He was going to be there with his people. He's not going to be a God way out there on the mountain, far away, unapproachable. He's going to be right there in their midst. But what happens? Uh, Verse 5, God says, Israel, I don't know if I can live with you. You've been unfaithful to me. And then in verse 5, he says, For the Lord has said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I will consume you. God says, I I don't think we can live together. Because if we live together, I'm going to destroy you. And the reason I'm going to destroy you is because God is holy. He He is pure light. And because he's pure light, the Bible says that he is like a consuming fire. Now, imagine this, the, the pureness of light. Think about uh, the sun and its beauty and its radiance, but you can't look at the sun directly. Remember when we had the, the, the eclipse? Now, there are the warnings all over the place. Do not look at the sun. Do not look at the sun. Hopefully, you did not look at the sun uh, because it would burn your eyes. It, it's, it's too bright. It's too beautiful. In the same way, God's holiness is like that. We cannot look at it directly or else it will burn us. We will be consumed. And so so God says, uh, you cannot look at me. You cannot be near me or else I will consume you. Now, something interesting happens. If you still have your Bible open, notice in verses 1 through 6, God goes into this explanation about how he cannot go with them, that he's going to find a separate house to live in apart from them, and he's not going to dwell with them. And then Moses prays in verse 12. Well, in the middle, in verses 7 to 11, we have what looks like an interruption in the story. All of a sudden, it's like the story stops, and they tell about, oh, Moses used to walk off and meet with God in this tent. What's the purpose of this? When 7 through 11, God talks about the tent of meeting, which is uh, not the tabernacle that's already been described. And in those verses 7 through 11, uh, this break in the story Uh, we find that the picture about this tent of meeting is all wrong. It's nothing like the tabernacle. Instead, we're told that Moses used to pitch a tent outside the camp, and he would go way outside the camp, and there he would meet with the Lord. It looked more like this. So he would go way outside. Do you notice the difference in the picture? With the tabernacle, what God was saying is, I'm going to dwell in your midst. I'm going to be there in your presence. And now God is saying, when Moses meets with me, he has to go way, way outside. He has to go for a hike to meet with me because he can't meet with me near you. God is outside the camp. He will not be near his people. It's like a divorce. God cannot live with his people, so he gets a separate place to live. And here's our problem. We are desperate for God's presence. Our life is empty without it. But because God is holy and we are sinful, we cannot live in the presence of God. God is a consuming fire and our sin is like gasoline. And if we get too close, it's just going to combust. Or you think about, remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, the original. And we see the holiness of God and they open up the ark and what happens? The head explodes. You cannot look in the holiness of God. It will consume you. And so here we have this problem. We, we, we long to be close to God. We, we desire to have that intimacy. But, but if we get close, it's, we're going to be destroyed. And, and we intuitively know this. It's why our guilt and our shame keep us from drawing near to God. We, we know we're sinners. 
We, we know that uh, we deserve God's judgment. We know that we, uh, we, we deserve his wrath. So what do we do? We settle for living lives of quiet desperation. Like a husband or a wife that's afraid if they, if they try to reconcile with their spouse, they're going to be faced with more pain and more rejection and more hurt. And so we content ourselves with sort of a, a quasi-detente. We say, okay, we can't have intimacy, but maybe we can at least just kind of get out of each other's way. And we settle for less than an intimate life. But Moses will not have that. He says, oh, Lord, if you're going to send us to the land and you're not going to go, I don't want to go. I don't care about the milk and the honey and the prosperity and all that stuff. If you're not there, do not go. I would rather die right here in this desert is what he's saying. And so, so he pleads with God. He pleads with God. And he says in verses 12 and 13, God says, God, you, you called me to lead these people, but you haven't let me know your plans. And I don't want to mess it up, so I need to know what's going on. And God responds in verse 14. He says, my presence will go with you. And here, by the way, is where we have a problem with the English language that is easily solvable. Because when it says you, does it mean you singular or you plural? You can't tell, right? You don't know if he's saying, God's saying, Moses, I'll go with you, or if he's saying, I'll go with you. Now, how do you solve that problem? You put Southerners on every Bible translation committee. I mean, it's the right thing to do, right? Because you got you, and you've got y'all, and you got all y'all, right? And so, and so the question is, is this a you or a y'all? It's not a y'all. God is saying to them, he goes, he doesn't say, I'm going to go with y'all. He says to Moses, I'll go with you. You, Moses, have found favor in my sight. You, Moses, I like. You, Moses, I delight in. But not these people. I'll go with you. The implication is I'm not going to go with them. And Moses says, no, Lord, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. He says, remember, these are your people. You're married to them. They're yours. You're the one who chose them. You're the one who, who rescued them out of Egypt. They're, they're yours. So then he goes on and says, says uh, if you will not go with me, verse 15, then do not bring us up. If you do not go with me, then don't bring us up. And then verse 16 he says, in effect, you must go with us. Not just me, you must go with us. Because if you don't go with us, then we're just like the other nations. The other nations, they, go, they have a God who's far away, who's distant, and they can't relate to. Not, they don't have this loving relationship. They have a power God. They don't have a father. They don't have a loving God. And so we're supposed to be different. We're your people. We're, we're supposed to be intimate. And so we want you to go with us. Go with us. He's pleading with God for, the, for God to be intimate with his people. And so uh, you know, Moses uh, says, Lord, if you're not going to go with us, not just me, I still don't want to go. See, God's offering an amicable divorce. He says, okay, I'm not going to destroy you. I'm going to set you up in your own house. There'll be child support. There'll be alimony. You'll be fine. And Moses says, I don't want that. I want you. Without you. I'm desperate for you. Without you, there's no point. There's no point. And so God relents. And God promises Moses that he will do what he has asked. He will go with his people. Now, you think Moses would quit while he's ahead, but he doesn't. He says, okay, God, I've got something else. I want you to show me your glory. What is he saying? He's saying, he's saying I want to see your glory. I want, I, I, you know, I want you to put it in writing, essentially, is what he's saying. 
I want, to, I want to experience your presence here and now. I want to see you. I want to experience you. I want to know you. I want to, 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 to behold you in your majesty. And uh, because life, the good life has no meaning unless I have you. Then God responds in verse 20. He says, Moses, I love you. You're great. You're special. But even you, even you cannot handle my glory. Even you cannot see my holiness. No one can see my glory and live. The best I can do for you, Moses, is we can't see each other face to face and, and not in a real way. The best I can do is I can hide you in a rock and I can walk by. And after I get by, you can come out and get a, like maybe a sneak of me as I'm slipping away. You can get a glimpse, but we can't have intimacy. It's not going to be a face-to-face relationship, Moses, because you can't handle it. You'll be destroyed. Moses longs to know God intimately, but true intimacy is not possible. God is still a holy fire. Sin is still like gasoline, and the two must be kept apart. Now, if the story were to end there, it'd be a tragic story. It'd be Romeo and Juliet. They can see each other. They can't be together. It would be like a married couple who only sees each other on FaceTime. It would not be something of intimacy. But the story doesn't end there. So let's see how it ends. Uh, Third point, the way to God's presence. How can we, as a sinful people, experience intimacy with God? That's the question. That's the challenge. And that's what Exodus steps up for us. Well, the Gospel of John shows us the way because the Gospel of John opens up very intentionally borrowing language from the book of Exodus. And in the Gospel of John chapter 1, the writer John uh, tells us about the incarnation, that is that time when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on human human nature, became a human being, human flesh, and, and he came among us. And he describes this in John chapter 1 verse 14. Notice what John says. It says, and the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that word dwelt among us doesn't show up in our English translation, but that word dwelt among us, what it literally says is he tabernacled among us. Do you get the significance? That God is saying, I'm not going to be far away from you, but Jesus is saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to be right there in the camp and I'm going to pitch my tent right in the middle with you. I'm not staying someplace far away. I'm going to be here with my people, dwelling with my people. And, and there's a sense that John goes on to say, and so now we're able to see something even Moses could not see. And they beheld his what? His glory. Moses cries out for the glory of God. Jesus reveals the glory of God to us, full of grace and truth. And so then the question becomes, how? How is it possible that we as sinful people uh, can see God's glory without being consumed? And you continue on with John chapter 1, and we see that John the Baptist in John 1 verse 29 gives us the answer. He sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. The only way... We as sinful people can't come before a holy God as if God takes away our sin. And so Jesus, by his life, 
his death, his resurrection, by all that he did, he has removed our sin and replaced it with his righteousness. And so what happens is when a, when a person becomes a Christian, we become so united to Christ that all that is his becomes ours. And so our sin is taking off of us and is put on him. And so Jesus was rejected on the cross. Jesus was consumed by the judgment of God. And we were given the righteousness so that we might be accepted by God. So what the Bible says about you, Christian, now is that you are holy and blameless. The Bible says about me right now, I am holy and blameless. That is awfully hard to say because I know some of you pretty well. And my first two words that came to my mind were not holy and blameless. And some of you know me quite well, and I can guarantee you of the 50 top words that didn't make the top 50, right? Uh, loud, obnoxious, things like that might have. Holy, blameless was not in the list. And yet the Bible says it's true. It says that because we're in Christ, our sin has been taken away and put on Christ, and we are now holy and blameless and righteous in Christ. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that now... We can draw near to God. So the writer of the book of Hebrews talks about the tabernacle as well and the temple. And he says, the curtain that kept, kept us out of the presence of God has now been torn. And then he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 10, therefore draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Notice what he's saying there. He says, we can now go before God because see, sin is like gasoline. God's holiness is like fire. The two cannot meet, but what if the sin is removed? And he said, it's been removed. Just like we've been sprinkled clean, like the waters of baptism have washed over us and sprinkled us clean so that we now stand before God without spot, without blemish, without sin. And so the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, draw near to God. You can draw close. We no longer have to fear being in God's presence because of what Jesus has done. We can get close to God. We can see and experience God's glory in even ways that Moses could not. Now, when it comes to our relationship with God, Many of us have what might be called the approach avoidance conflict. Uh, some of you have experienced this in relationships or done this. And the approach avoidance conflict is like this. It's like, right, you get that? Draw near, oh, stop, you know, it's, and it's, you're, you're afraid. Uh, and so think, imagine it this way. Let's say a, a single man meets a single woman and he's really drawn to her. He goes, wow, I would really like to get to know her. Well, what does he have to do? He has to ask her out. Like pick up the phone, dial the phone, you know, not like text, phone, call, talk, right? Text, no, call, good. Okay, and so uh, he, he has to do that. And, but the problem with calling on the phone and asking a, a woman out is what? She might say no. I can tell you this from personal experience, thankfully, many years ago. Uh, marriage and not ever having to do that again is like the most blessed gift. Uh, it's... Um, and now your palms are sweaty. It's like your voices is like going through voice change again. It is just like the worst experience on the planet because you're calling on the phone and you're going, what if she says no? Or what if she says yes out of pity, which is just as bad. And, and, and so you're so afraid. But here's the problem. If you don't ask her out, you're guaranteed never to go out. It's not going to ever happen. All right. Amen there, brother. Right? Okay. So... But if you do ask her out, there's a chance she's going to say no. And so what you're doing is then we have this calculus that goes on our brain. And so I've got to look at this and go, risk-reward. 
The reward is pretty good. I get to go out with this person. The risk is it's going to be painful, and I've got to decide if the reward is greater than the risk. Then the other calculation that's going on in the brain is probability, you know? What, what, what are the chances of success here? And you do all this, and you get the paralysis of analysis, and, and, and oftentimes you do nothing. But, and so we have that same sort of thing in our relationship with God. Uh, we, by the way, you have this in friendships. You have this in marriage. Oftentimes, couples have grown apart, and, and one of them, uh, the, and probably usually both of them, want to be back together but each is afraid to make the move for afraid of being rejected and the pain again, so they stay distant. And the same thing happens with God. We're afraid to draw near. We see our sin, and it's real. And we see our guilt, and it's real. And I go, I can't come before God like this. i got to clean up my act. i got to get things together. i got to do things right. But you know what? You cannot clean up your act. You cannot get the gasoline off of you. The stench of sin cannot be removed by you. Only one can do that, and that is Jesus and so, so what, what do we have to do? Uh, the, the life of, of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ changes the calculus for us. What if you were guaranteed the reward without any of the risk? Jesus has taken the risk. He has taken the judgment of God on our behalf. Because he's taken the judgment of God on our behalf and given us his righteousness, here's the guarantee for those who have faith in Jesus, when you walk into the presence of God, he's not going, oh. his face lights up. He delights. So how do we deal with this? Well, we see our sin so clearly that oftentimes we forget the grace and the beauty of Jesus. We forget what he has done. And so uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher of the last century, gave some just beautiful advice to us. He said, for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at the cross. Every one look at the sin, take ten looks at the cross, and we look and we see, as real as your sin is, his grace is greater. We've been singing about that all morning, right? His grace is greater. And so we have to see that we can draw near with confidence because Jesus has taken our sin away. So how do we do that? How do we draw near? Well, we do what Moses did. We come and we pray and we worship. And we come, we pray, and say, Lord, show me your glory. Help me to know you, Lord. We worship through his word, and, and, and we, we praise him for his beauty and his attributes. Notice how God reveals himself to Moses in describing what he is like. And we, we meditate on those things. We even sing to him. Now, oftentimes in prayer, we're so busy going through our checklist, which, by the way, is important. We're bringing our needs before God. We're saying, Lord, here's the stuff that I need. Lord, I, I, I need you to watch over me. Help me with my job. Help me with these things. That's important. I don't want to minimize that. But on the other hand, we spend very little time saying, Lord, what I want is you. I don't just want the goods. I want you. And so we pray and we worship and we meditate on this goodness of God. And by the way, this takes time. You cannot have an intimate relationship with any human being without investing time. It just doesn't happen. Your marriage takes time. Your relationship with your children takes time. To have friends takes time. And the same thing is true with God. But here's the beauty of it. We invest the time. Show me your glory. And he shows it to us in Christ. And the more we see Jesus, the more we see the glory of God. Isn't that what you want? Do you really want to go on a honeymoon alone? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a great and mighty God. And not only are you great and mighty, but you're merciful, slow to anger, full of compassion. 
We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have made it possible for us to draw near through you. We thank you that through what you have done, we can come without any fear of condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray, help us to draw near without fear. I know for there may be some of you that are here today and this idea of actually being close to God and intimate with God may be, may be new to you. I invite you simply to pray along with me something like this. Say, Lord, I, I know my sin is like gasoline and I know that you're holy and I know there's nothing I can do to fix it. I know that all of my efforts and good works will not take it away. But I thank you that Jesus Christ came and he lived the life that I could not live and he died the death that I should have died so that I might have your love. And so, Lord, I thank you for the forgiveness I have in Jesus, for the righteousness I have in Jesus, and I'm drawing near to you. And I thank you that you invite me to do so through Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.